reading from Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Is there more? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The word of the Lord. Yeah. Thank you for that reading, Carla. The gate is small and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The kids are not invited to kids' church today, which means the length of the sermon is not dictated by when David freaks out, but when the kids freak out. That's normally, it's, it's David who's the thermometer for if I've gone too long, but today uh, we'll go with the kids. Although, David, try to make it as long as they can. <laughs> the... Um, series that we've been doing is sort of this instructions for building a house and we're reaching sort of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We have one more Sunday left and that's where we'll talk particularly about the parable that led to this image that that wise is the man who builds himself on the rock um, uh, and in the sand can wipe away other houses and so this idea of how are we building this house and what I've been trying to do partially is break this out of that individualistic interpretation. How do you build your house? tell how God is building in his church a house as well. I think that oftentimes when we, when we talk about any passage in the Bible, but certainly even ones like the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes about how am I living? How am I doing? But I think what the Sermon on the Mount is asking us to ask, how are we doing? How are we going about this? And this breaks our modern minds to some degree. I mean, there's a passage um, in... Uh, uh, the Corinthian correspondence, where Paul is talking about because one member has joined himself to a prostitute, all the others are joined as well. There's this notion that the, that the church as the body of the Christ in some way is a body in the world. And what happens to one member of it affects the other members of it. And so as we look at this as instructions for building a house, this sort of teaching series, it's instruction on building your individual life, but it's also our corporate life together. Now, the Sermon on the Mount began with blessings. 
Blessings on people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and Christ is blessed at the beginning. And now at the end, and this is classic in, in um, commencement speeches to ancient Near East literature to everything else, is that when you, when you begin to end, you move towards a challenge. You move to how are you going to do this. And so Jesus ends this sermon with sort of uh, three or four options, depending on how you want to think about it. There's the, the narrow road and the wide road. There's the um, good trees and the bad trees. There's the true and false disciples. And then the wise and foolish, foolish builders. Some people combine the middle two together as if that's a longer um, example of the one thing. Um, but these uh, teachings at the end seem to suggest there's something we supposed to, we're supposed to do with this, which may sound as a, a, a shock, but that's um, part of where we are with interpretations on the Sermon on the Mount. One of the guides we've been using as a quote is this, this, this one here. As Christians, we ought to live the ethic, the life of the sermon. We are human, however, and so cannot live the sermon perfectly. We ought to therefore recognize our obligation and our inability, and by that very recognition, give glory to God. See, there's, um, there's three sort of major thoughts here. As Christians, we ought to live the ethic of the sermon. Okay, fine. We're human, however, and so can't do it perfectly. There's a, there's a mass interpretation, we talked about this earlier, that says, okay, so therefore it's there to prove that we can't do it. And we throw ourselves on the grace of God in knowing that we can't do it. But there's this third sentence that says we ought to therefore recognize both our obligation, that we are called to do this, and in our inability. And so we both throw ourselves on the grace of God, but also um, his grace to build us up. And in that, we give glory to God in this way. That that is sort of the, the way in which we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And it will reach its peak next week in the teaching. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is where the sermon is going to end. But today, Jesus sort of ends his ethical teaching. We move towards the challenges. Now, Brian, um, in the worship set, read to us that, that ending from the book of Deuteronomy, or near the ending, where it's, there's these two roads, and you choose life or you choose death. The didacte, and I've said this many times, an early Christian document that didn't make the Bible, um, but was not condemned, important clarification there, um, uh, says it begins with, there are two roads in life, one leads to life and one leads to death. And that this sort of nature of the biblical worldview is sort of that there are two choices. You can move towards life or you can move towards death. We live in a world that wants to see gray. Actually, a well-known um, Christian wrote a book titled Seeing Gray in a, in a Black and White World as if that were the virtue. And I do think there's um, wisdom in being able to discern through difficult issues. There is gray in the world. But the overarching message of the Bible in many ways is that there is one road that goes to life and one road that goes to death. And what does it mean for us to be a people of life? That there are these two ways here. And so we've moved from blessing to ethical teaching to, thank you, um, to, to sort of this two choices. And we're going to see it in a couple different places here as we end this. The first is this narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Um, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The image that I was thinking of as, as we were as I was preparing this part of it is there's this idea of like when you go to Denver, um, when you get right outside of um, where Morrison is below you, uh, there's like a Chick-fil-A there too. It gets to like six lanes, uh, both sides, very wide, um, and you're like near the city, and that's the way you want to go into Denver, right? Like that's the way it's, uh, uh, this is where the semi ran into something that had a big explosion. Do people know where I'm talking about? Yes, okay. Um, you go down to there, and it's like this is the wide road. There's many different lanes, many different ways you can go. Um, you can go very fast in that left-hand lane, faster than I'm even like to go. And in that right-hand lane, you have people breaking radically to get off to go to Colorado Springs in the small merge. Um, yeah, yeah, quite dangerous there. Um, the, uh, and that, what I was thinking about that is that this is sort of what Jesus is saying is that there is a wide and easy road into, into a path. And yet that is the path that leads to death. And what he says is there's another road, a smaller, narrower, tougher road, and that is the road that leads to life. And so as you think about that image, if you have it in your head, there's that on that one, there's, it's, there's unlimited options in some sense. Um, you can do many different things. And you, what Christ is saying is that where we find life is in constriction, and this is the opposite everything in the world wants to tell us. That you're better off placing yourself on that wide road where you can go to multiple different lanes, multiple different spots, multiple different places, um, and plow right into Denver as quick as possible. And yet, what we're called to do is to find the little road, the narrow way, and that's what leads to life. Brian and Carla um, and other people were talking about music this morning, I believe Elvis. Um, and Elvis was like the only thing you could listen to for a time. Um, it was very popular. Um, and one of the things that I think about as constriction leading to, to goodness is that nowadays with Spotify or Apple Music or whatever the heck you have, you can listen, you can, I can't be the only person who this happens to, which is I can listen to anything in the whole world and I have no idea what to do. And I feel disappointed with all the choices I make because there's so much out there. See, I used to have um, a Zune, which is now like very like, um, and a Zune could hold like, let's just call it an iPod for easier sake because everybody's like, what's a Zune? Microsoft knockoff um, of an iPod. It, you could put like um, 10,000 songs on there. And so you had to be at least some sense creative then. When I was in college, I had compact discs and I could only afford a certain amount. And with those restrictions, I was able to get more creative and more um, smart about what I wanted to play. I was almost never disappointed in what I wanted to put on because it was like, I'm in this mood. I have one album that represents that mood. I'm just going to listen to it. Um, and that was just sort of the way it went. And so what happened is we've taken from uh, one radio station or one TV. Uh, Brian was talking about in Wyoming where he grew up, sometimes they got one radio station, not even all the time. Um, is that you constrict things and then you sort of find art and freedom. This is, there's a classic story about Dr. Seuss with this. Is After he wrote Cat in the Hat, he was challenged to write a book with less words. And I think he wrote um, Green Eggs and Ham after that. 
that in art we find sort of restriction creates freedom, and we don't think that way about our lives ever, is that we want to be maximally free. But what Jesus is saying, what he's binding to us in the Sermon on the Mount, is the sense in that freedom comes in these constrictions, that here is where we find life. I'm a book nerd, and so when you say you can have every book in the world, that would be like a mess. It would not work. I wouldn't know what to read or where to go. But if you said to me you could have a thousand, that would bring interesting choices and creativity and freedom, or ten. Let's say ten. Ten, I would just be sad. Um, a thousand, I would be like, okay, well, I've got some room to work with. A hundred, probably still sad. Um, but like in this narrowness, is where good things seem to come. It's almost like if, if we had a choice to, for our children, which are in church today, to give them a life without suffering and challenges, um, to make them not vulnerable, to make them in some sense not your kids anymore, there would be something other than the thing which you love in its vulnerability. Um, and this is the way that life goes. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that in the wide space, all the options are available to you, but there is destruction there. And this is um, where perhaps in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this, there's this um, tension between what the church is and what the world is. It's not named as clearly as it is in John's gospel per se, but this is very clearly where the disciples and the church are taken off one path and placed onto another path. And if you think about that compared to your neighbor, let's say, who has all the options and availabilities and, and sins and interests and whatever else available to them, and you've been radically transformed into taking a narrow way in the world. Um, that, that in some sense your life will be transformed by having that constriction placed upon it. And one of the, I think, modern lies that we can say as a church is there's nothing different once you join this thing. You can pray a little bit more and you're saved. But you're taken off the wide road. You're taken off the interstates of life. And you're pushed into the smaller places. Which is great, because everybody will get on that road. Unfortunately, Jesus says to us, But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The church likes to be on top and in power, and we want many Many is the word that we would hope for as a church. And yet we're promised by Christ that it is few who find it. And this is um, a challenge, I think, for us. Because it's one thing to be on a narrow road that leads to life with lots of people. It's another thing to be on a narrow road that leads to life with a few people. And so it is for the church to sort of find each other on this road. It's never supposed to be popular. It's never supposed to be the road that everybody pulls over and goes to. But it is a detour that makes all the difference. Because on the wide road we have, um, vice is easy. I mean, there's a, a... infinite angles at which you will fall at and only a couple at which you will stand at. 
The idea with that is that in a wide road, there's so many ways in which you can pull yourself into destruction. And in a narrow way, there's, there's only way which you can stand. And this is good news for us. That being imprinted and drawn into this narrow gate and narrow road, that we're actually given a life um, that's full that destruction falls for us. There's, there's um, I joke with people that one of the best parts of growing up, the kind of Presbyterian that I grew up in, is that we were taught to take sin seriously by not taking it that seriously. Wide is the road. You have many choices. You can do many things. But to go narrow, to, to embrace the constriction of goodness and truth and beauty, to embrace the life of the Sermon on the Mount, while smaller, is actually more interesting. I mean, in college, if you go to a secular college, probably more true if you go to a Christian college, everybody sins the same way. Um, there is no unique sin that's going on in your dorm room. But if you feel called into prayer, if you feel called into loving your enemies, if you feel called into um, combating with lust and these things, you actually become the unique thing in the world. What's interesting is how you end up there. To have all the options available and to go the same way into lust and greed and destruction is just the way the world goes. But to take something seriously, to take seriously is the goodness of the narrow road. And the challenges and care that come with it, that's what's worth guarding and taking seriously. Sin is, is not that interesting, as much as we'd like it to be. Uh, it's the same thing over and over again. And so we sort of move into this place, and Oliver Donovan, the theologian, I've shared this quote before, has this great phrase, uh, phrase for what we're called into is, is that it is not comfort without demand, and it is not demand without comfort. But God calls us into demanding comfort. That we, we are moved from this place in which we just hear demand. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, be, beginning with blessings and declaring who we are in salt and light, calls us into this place of comfort. And yet there is demand. And we live oftentimes in our world, which it's, it's either one or the other. You can't have comfort um, and demand together, and you can't have demand and comfort together. And what Christ calls us to is a demanding comfort. And so when we hear the gospel, it's not always just comfort. If it's that way, we've distorted it. And yet, if we only hear demand, we too have distorted the gospel. Martin Luther, um, his, his distinction for this was law and gospel. And he said, anybody who thinks it's easy to do this doesn't get it. He said, you need to be a, a surgeon with a fine scalpel to be able to separate law and gospel. Um, and, and that, I think, is part of where we exist in the world today, is it's hard to hear these teachings. The next section, um, as we've been called, and this is the Bonhoeffer quote on the back of the bulletin, um, Bonhoeffer captures this well what the narrow road is. The road of the disciple is narrow. It is, not e it is easy to go past. It is easy to miss. It is easy to lose, even for those who have already walked it. It is hard to find. The path is narrow indeed. There is real danger of falling off both sides. To be called to do the extraordinary, but to not to see and to know the one doing it, that is the narrow road. To give witness and to confess 
the truth of Jesus, but to love the enemy of this truth, who is the enemy of our enemy, with unconditional love of Christ, that is the narrow road. To believe in Jesus' promise that those who, who shall who follow shall possess the earth, but to encounter the enemy unarmed, to prepare suffer, suffering injustice, to doing ill, that is a narrow road. To perceive other people as being weak and wrong, but to never to judge them, to proclaim the good news to them, but to never to throw pearls before swine, that is the narrow road. It is an unbearable road. The dangers of falling off threatens every minute. As long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk and try to walk it, in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me step by step, if I look at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. The call of this narrow word, road in the world has those challenges of falling off. And yet what Bonhoeffer correctly nails for us that we can miss is, is Christ who walks this road before us. In some sense, the Sermon on the Mount, I think it was um, Pope Benedict who said this, is that it's the autobiography of Jesus Christ written in, in um, uh, prose instead of a life. Like he is the one who walks this road and so does for us to see him and walk it behind him. So this should be easy, and we should be safe on the narrow road. Watch out for false prophets is what begins the next portion of the teaching. And this is, um, we know this all too well, I think, in the church today, um, in, in incredibly harmful ways, in ways that make the news, and in ways that don't, I think. But our hope, I mean, our hope, and, and I think the disciples at this moment are like, let's all get on the narrow road together and things should be well there. But what happens is that that road is laid with people of, of falseness, of struggle. This, David, you made it. <laughs> um, one crier. Um, um, but there's wolves in sheep's clothing. And what's, I think, interesting for, for the Sermon on the Mount is this is not just doctrine. I think oftentimes when I've heard people use this in the world, they talk about people teaching poorly. And if you think about it, in a lot of ways, teaching poorly will take somebody off the narrow road and put them back on the wide road. So there's a connection there. But when Jesus in these next two teachings sort of goes through this, he talks about the um, things that are ethically related to us. That these people will know because they don't live this way. By their fruit, you will recognize them, is what he says. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit." read this joke this week, which um, I'm sure everybody's heard because it was so familiar when I read it, but it's about the person who has the, um, all the Jesus-y bumper stickers on their car, and they get pulled over by uh, a policeman, and they say, what I do wrong? I said, nothing illegal, but you did honk at an old woman in a crosswalk, and you did flick off somebody in a Honda Sienna, and you did run two people off the road almost with your poor driving, and so I, with your stickers, I just assumed the car was stolen. Um, <laughs> Maybe that hasn't been as used. I thought that was a bad preacher's joke that is way overused. Uh, yeah, see, um, the, uh, knowing them by their fruit, 
is sort of that what that parable is trying to sort of condense, is that if you hang around people long enough, that you'll begin to know them by the fruits that they bear. And I think this is one of the challenges for the church, because oftentimes when we meet people we want to, and I should say myself here, is when somebody comes to me um, and says, you know, I'm a Christian and this, that, and the other, if they really want to, like, move into life together, my, my, off, my often go-to questions about what they might believe rather than watch what is born out of their lives. And I can tell you the number of times I've been a pastor for almost 10 years now, the number of times where me and other people have said, you know, they, they check all the boxes right, and that person has a blow-up or a breakdown, or they disappear or destruction comes, and we're like, oh, we are horrible judges without looking for fruit. It'd be nice to be able to... Um, to be able to give a test to people and say, okay, well, you know, this is bad fruit. Uh, this person will produce bad pr- fruit predictively. This person predictively will produce good fruit. But that's not the world we're given. And so what we have to do is be patient and watch. Second thing with this is um, we also have to be willing to call out our bad investments in time too. And this is where the church has gone wrong in many ways is that a little bit creeps in and you look at it and you say, well, you know, they did this well or they did that well. And you begin to ignore the bad fruit because of something that impressed you that wasn't even on the, the target to begin with. So for the church, it's, it's wise to watch, to be patient in time and to watch what fruit emerges. And in my limited judge, I've been so wrong about people who I'm like, oh, that's never going to work. And yet they show up every time. They bring food. They care. They find people. So yeah, when I asked them one question, they said something a little weird. And it turns out they're just a little weird. Um, And I was not able to discern correctly all the answers to those questions. The Amish, Merle knows this, have a... uh, uh, they draw pastors by lots in many of their communities. And, and a friend of mine jokes, isn't that what it is always? So no matter how many interviews you do, no matter how many times you have conversations, you're still basically going by lot, throwing some dice. We try to use wisdom, and I think that is what we're called to do. But I think as the church, we have to recognize a lot of this is by lot because we don't see inside the tree. We don't see where it comes from. And that's where we, we watch and we should be judging by fruit, not by what we think we can see inside of a person. That's not to say we'll always be wrong and sometimes there are red flags that, that are correct, but for us to sort of look for what fruit is being born in those places. This is what Christ calls us to here, and this will be among us. That's the, the deeper challenge here, is this is not someplace else in the world, but is in the church, in the walls. So to be on guard and to watch for those things where they come, because they will disguise themselves like sheep, and yet they will be ferocious wolves. The next teaching is, is perhaps more challenging. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. This is a, 
a much tougher teaching because there are people, and these people, um, it's three times, they, or two times they say, Lord, Lord, which is a, a recognition of who Jesus is. And three times they say, in your name, that they seem to have close proximity to Jesus. And yet what they seem to be into is this, this notion of, of what would be called, um, uh, well, I'll just say, in miracles. Like what they're performing is miracles. And we often would, as a church, that's what is fruit to us. Um, you can share the gospel. You can bring many people in. You can do all these things. Um, that is the miraculous. And we assume that that is the way it goes. But what Christ says, and it's, it's, you have to read the passage slowly to really get to it, but is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is the correct path. It's the way we are supposed to be. It's not, look at the miracles I did, look at the demons I drove out, look what I've done in your name, which is the good things, um, the impressive things, the things that would make the news per se. But Jesus says, it's the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And I think if we, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, what is the will of the Father for heaven is disclosed for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Where are the miracles in the Sermon on the Mount? Where are the driving out demons in the Sermon on the Mount? Where is the prophesizing in his name in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not there, per se. And so what we are called into is to look at how we live the path that he has laid for us in his teaching. And to not just fall into the miraculous. And so there are those who say, look, and then that there are those that do. And this is the limits of miracles as we have them here. Um, Lord, Lord uh, is the same thing that the, the sheep and the goats are differentiated from in Matthew 25. Um, there's a group, uh, this parable, um, the nations are in front of the, the judge and he says to those on his right, come into the kingdom. Um, and those to the left, he doesn't. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and the, the difference between them is when did they see you hungry and give you food? When did they see you naked and clothe you? When, were they, um, uh, when did they see the thirsty and give them drink? Uh, and when did they visit those in prison? Um, and that is the difference between sheep and goats. In that instance, both want to say, Lord, Lord. And I think it's um, worth noting in in that tree metaphor, I, I, that sheep and goats parable, I should probably preach on one of these days because I have so many thoughts on it that are different than I think the standard story. But the, the thing is, both say, Lord, Lord, when did we do that to those groups? The goats, or the sheep, the good ones, didn't say, well, we heard your teaching and we just continually went out and did this over and over again. It came from who they are on how they did that. Connecting this backwards to the tree story that we just talked about. It's not so much that you just go and say, well, I will be a good tree instead of a bad tree or something like that. But it becomes out of this way in which we ingrain ourselves to who Christ is. They don't walk around the sheep in that parable and go, well, there's somebody hungry and Jesus said, I must feed them there, I'll feed them. They walk around and because they know who Jesus is, they intuitively do that. So much so when they're congratulated on that day, they don't say, yep, I remember when I did that. They say, Lord, when did we do that? 
There's a different way we can count up our good works. It's not just miracles. There's different ways we can begin to say, here's the way I am the just one. And yet there's a freedom to self-forgetfulness in this, of never continually having to justify ourselves over and over again, but trusting in who we are with God. And that's where I want to end this, this today's sermon is on this notion of trust. We have two different um, quotes that we'll end with. The first comes from the, um, that's from the Bible, um, the Lutheran Catholic uh, statement on justification. So Lutherans and Catholics historically disagreed over justification. And for some reason, you know, 500 years, we get together and say, what do we agree on? This is the church. Uh, thanks be to God. Um, uh, and yet they got together in 2000, and one of the things, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because how do we know we're saved? That is, I think, part of the question that honest people ask after hearing these last three te- te- teachings. They go, narrow, how do I know I'm on the narrow road, not on the wide road? How do I know um, that I'm a, a not a, a sheep in wool's clothing or a good tree? How do I know that? And who are the true and false disciples? How do I know that I'm not just doing these things, hoping Christ will notice, yet when in fact on that day he says to me, I never knew you, evildoer. Um, and in church history, this tension is high. Um, in the modern world, I think we've sort of pushed it underneath, but today um, it's, a, it's a high tension, I think, in some ways to sort of get this. And, and you end up with different answers. I think one of the struggles is like your assurance of salvation comes through an experience begins to be believing in your believing. And it's not believing the external word that is Jesus Christ to you. So I'll read this um, from here. Um, we confess together that the faithful can rely on the mercy and promises of God. If you're looking, and this is my problem too, I begin to look inside myself to ask, am I a good tree? Which path I'm on? When in fact, this justification and most of our better theologians have said, no, look at the mercy and promises of God to determine that. In spite of their weaknesses and the manifold threats to their faith on the strength of Christ's resurrection, they can build on the effective promise of God's grace in word and sacrament, and so be sure of this grace. This was emphasized in particular by the way the reformers, in the midst of temptation, believers should not look to themselves, but to look solely to Christ and to trust only in him. In trust in God's promises, they are assured of their salvation, but they are never secure looking at themselves. No one may doubt God's mercy and Christ's merit. Um, Every person, however, may be concerned about his salvation, and he looks upon his weaknesses and shortcomings. Recognizing his own failures, however, the believer may yet be certain that God intends their salvation. That what this calls out for us is that we're not just continually inwardly probing, trying to trust in ourselves. You want to know why you're on the good path. You want to know why you're a good tree um, instead of a bad tree. You want to know what type of prophet you are. Trust in the words of God. Trust in your baptism. Trust in the work that God has done in his cross and resurrection. It pulls us out of our navel-gazing and brings us into new life. And so this prayer, um, adapted from the Book of Common Prayer, Um, I'll read it once. Almighty God, who has given your only Son to be both a sacrifice for our sin and also an example of godly living. Here's where we hold these two things together. Christ is both a sacrifice for our sin, 
Don't stop there. In an example for godly living. Now, you could reverse it and say, Christ is an example for godly living. Don't forget, and both a sacrifice for our sin. This is how the good news works. Give me grace that I may always most thankfully receive his inestimable benefit. And this is at the gate as we enter into the gate, the narrow way. And daily endeavor myself to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life on the road of discipleship. Through, which in the liturgy means, of course, by the power of the same, uh, the same your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now forever and ever. This prayer, which we'll pray as we close our sermon.